together with me to Paul's letter to the Colossians. Paul's letter to the Colossians today, we're going to be reading and looking together at chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, what is known as the great hymn of the preeminence of Christ, widely believed that uh, if, uh, if Paul did not write this himself, he was pulling perhaps from early church tradition and gathering some of the language that the church was beginning to use already uh, in singing praises to the uh, eternal and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Today we're going to study this together, uh, verses 15 to 23, Paul's letter to the Colossians. If you picked up an ESV on the way in, you can find that on page 983. Colossians chapter 1. And before we read this passage together, please join me as we seek the Lord's blessing through a word of prayer. Let's pray. O gracious Lord and God, we thank you for sending your eternal word into the world. We thank you that you have made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Help us, O Lord, to see his goodness and his glory to know his mercy and care for us. Help us to believe in him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're now God's word as we find it in Colossians chapter 1, beginning to read in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and which I, Paul, became a minister." Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. Well, you recognize, of course, immediately that our scripture passage this morning is not one of those well-worn texts that we love to read on Christmas. I make no apology for that. Uh, it doesn't show up in the opening chapters of Luke or Matthew, these verses contain no mention of the shepherds, or the wise men, or the angelic announcements. Uh, these verses could not easily be reduced to a set of white porcelain figurines that fit neatly on a decorated mantle. 
It's widely regarded that Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians to counteract a theological controversy that was just beginning to sprout up among the saints in Asia Minor. From what scholars have reconstructed, from what we can gather, it seems that there was a new brand of teaching being mixed together with the pure word of the gospel. It seems that this new teaching believed that Jesus was good. And Jesus was gracious, and he was a savior of sinners, but it also taught that Jesus was one among many. It taught that he was the first spiritual being in a long string of spiritual beings that connected humble humanity with an unseen, exalted God. In other words, this new teaching seemed to say that, you know, Jesus is very much like us, And he's a little bit like God. It was a step in a divine direction. He was a rung on a ladder, though all the way at the bottom, a ladder that we can climb to make our way to heaven. In order to deal with that false teaching, Paul wrote this letter. And in order to give his argument teeth, he included these verses. So one commentator called Uh, this, this passage, an astounding, combative proclamation. Another one said that these words are Paul's Christological ammunition against the heresy that was taking hold. Perhaps Christological ammunition is not what you expected from your pastor for Christmas. Oh, at Christmas time, we love to be reminded of the humility of Jesus. The one who was incarnate by the Virgin Mary. We love to hear all over again about the one who stooped low to be clothed with our sufferings and our shame and our infirmities. We love to hear of the one that you can find just a page previously in Philippians. The one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant. We love to hear about the inns without rooms and the head without a crib and the wonderful story of the baby wrapped in swaddling claws and laid in a manger where the livestock fed. We love to hear of Christ's humility because we believe that the humility is the most miraculous part of Christmas. The Savior who became just like us. The king who doesn't act like he's too good for your company. And it's true. The humility of the incarnation is miraculous, but without the Christological ammunition that Paul gives us here in Colossians chapter 1, we will miss the miracle of miracles in the incarnation. Just last year, LifeWay Research did a survey. They conducted a survey among Americans, and and it was on what they believe about basic theological statements related to Christmas. Who Jesus is, why he was born, when he came. The survey revealed things that you probably would have guessed about Americans at large, the way that uh, other people in our country, in our culture, things they think about Jesus. But what was most surprising was what this survey revealed about Christians. Once the demographics separated out those who proclaim to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and in fact, once the demographics separated out those who say that they sit in Christian churches at least four Sundays a month, that's weekly for those of you playing along at home, 
right? At least four times a month, once those demographics were sorted, they found, according to the survey, that 98% of the people said they believe that Jesus is the Son of God the Father. That's pretty good. 95% said they agreed with the scriptures that he was born in Bethlehem about 2,000 years ago. So far, so good. And yet, of those weekly church-attending, self-professing Christians, among those who believe that the Son of God was born in Bethlehem, 63% said they believed that the Son of God existed before Jesus was born. 63%. I know as well as you do. I know that the reliability of self-reported surveys is debatable. I know that our first inclination is to say, well, uh, that other third, that other 37 that did not believe that he existed before the birth, that's a different kind of Christian. That doesn't show up here, right? But let the data sit with you for a second. If the numbers are correct then a full third of people who sit in Christian churches every Sunday of the year believe that Jesus was very much like you and me and that he was a little bit like God. It means that a third of self-professing Christians at Christmas believe in a Jesus who is humble and lowly and gentle in heart because he had a reason to be. They believe in a Jesus who has only ever been bound by time and space in suffering the same as you are. They believe in a Savior who is utterly and completely a part of our world, and so they believe in a Jesus who cannot give us hope of anything beyond our world. Oh, but the Lord has given us his scriptures. He has spoken through his apostolic witness so that we would not miss the miracle of miracles. The reality that not only was the Son of God born in a stable in Bethlehem, but the Son of God made the stable. The Son of God made Bethlehem. He made the tree that made the wood that made the feeding trough where he was laid. He made the angels, and he made the stars, and he made the camels, and he made the wise men. He made creation, and he made you. And the Lord, who is over all things, and before all things, and for whom all things exist, stooped low on the first Christmas to bridge the gap. Not to give us a a ladder, or a rung, or a step in the right direction. He stooped low to bridge the gap between our humble humanity and the eternal, unseen God. And he did it because he's the only one who could. That is the Christological ammunition that we need, especially at Christmas. This is a very long introduction to this passage. I concede that. Uh, But there are just two main points to the verses that are before us. You notice uh, that they tell us who Jesus really is first, verses 15 to 20. And then they tell us about what he has done to bring peace to his people. Who Jesus is and what he's done to bring peace to his people. Paul begins with one of the most exalted statements about the being of Christ found anywhere in the New Testament. He tells us in verse 15 that he is the image of of the invisible God, the image 
of the invisible. Now, you can find everywhere in Scripture the truth, the teaching, that the God who is cannot be seen by human eyes. In his first letter to Timothy, Paul calls him the king of ages, immortal and invisible. John tells us clearly at the opening of his gospel that no one has ever seen God. God is unseen. In a special sense, God is unseeable. One way of understanding the invisibility of God is to say that we have not seen him because he is immaterial. He's not made of the stuff of matter and atoms and protons and subatomic particles like everything else that exists in the world of creation. But when we say that God is immaterial, it sounds to some people, maybe it sounds to you, like we're saying that he's the one with the limitations. You know, God is not made of the stuff that needs to be seen or that can be seen. He lacks what could make him otherwise seeable. He lacks the stuff that might make him visible. Then that's the problem of his unseenness, that it belongs to him, that it would probably be much better if he were more like us, if he were a little bit more material. We need to think about things the other way around. No human eye has seen God because no human eye can comprehend him as he is. And the limitation of materiality is distinctly our own. He is infinite, and as infinite, he cannot be seen by that which is finite. He is all-encompassing, and he cannot be contained by the eyes of creatures who are bound in time and space. This is awfully esoteric for a Christmas morning sermon. So let us, let's put it this way. When Jesus entered creation, when he came into our materiality, he did it for our benefit. He came into our humanity to allow us to see what no human eye could have seen before. He came in to make the infinite, unseen, immaterial God visible, seeable in time and space by finite creatures. The letter to the Hebrews opens by telling us this, that the sun is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He is the light of God. He is the light that illumines our eyes so that we can see anything of him other than absolute darkness and obscurity. Jesus is the Lord of divine revelation. He makes the unseen God visible and he does it for our benefit. In a sense, he always has even before the incarnation. And it means that if you are reading your Bibles closely, you might want to push back against John's broad statement at the opening of his gospel. No one has ever seen God, says John. And you want to say, what about those that did? Right? What about the saints of old? What about Isaiah? Right? We, we quoted Isaiah last Sunday. Chapter 6, he beheld the Lord God and the radiance and the rapture of his glory in the temple. And he said, Isaiah chapter 6, Woe is me, for my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. And we want to know, how did he see what John says no eye could see? How did Isaiah behold the Lord, who he called Yahweh 
of hosts? And the answer is, he saw Jesus. That's what John concludes later in his gospel. John chapter 12, verse 41. In a section where John is talking about the fact that many of the leaders in Israel have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He quotes Isaiah chapter 6 and then immediately concludes this. He says, John chapter 12, verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Others haven't believed in Jesus, but Isaiah has. Why? Because he's seen him. Isaiah saw him, the glory of Yahweh of hosts, the image of the invisible God, the divine son who reveals the unseen God so that we can see what he's like. He saw Jesus because he's the only way that we can see who God is. It sets the stage for what comes next. He is the the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Our translation should probably say the firstborn over creation. It's a statement about Jesus' status. For Jesus to be the firstborn of creation means that he is the one to whom it belongs. Just like the firstborn of an ancient family had the right to inherit what belonged to the father. This is a statement of Jesus' status, not only his priority as first. There's an illustration of this in the Old Testament in Psalm 89, verse 27. The Lord there is making promises and declarations about David, the king whom he's chosen to place over his people Israel. And there he says, God says in Psalm 89, verses 26 and 27, he says, He shall cry to me, You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. But we know the story, don't we? David was not the firstborn in his family. Quite the opposite. David was the last runt in a line of eight brothers, the tiniest one at the end that everybody overlooked. He wasn't first, he wasn't preeminent, but God says, I make him the firstborn, the king over all of it. And it means that in the Bible, firstborn does not merely refer to the first natural child in a string of natural children. It does mean that very often. But it doesn't just mean that. It's a statement of authority. It's a statement of preeminence. It's a way of saying that Christ is head over all of it. And so maybe sometime after the new year, you'll get a knock on your door. You'll open your home and you'll find two friends standing there in the January snow, very eager to tell you about the teachings of the Watchtower Society the group that they call Jehovah's Witnesses. And if you give them the time of day, they will gladly point to Colossians chapter 1. They'll point out this language of Christ being the firstborn, and they will try to tell you that it means, yes, Jesus is the best. And Jesus is the first, but ultimately Jesus, well, he's a creature just like you and me. But if they show up, you'll be ready. You can open your Bibles and tell them that Paul sent you. You can become Jesus' witnesses, and you can proclaim that in him and through him and for him, all things exist. 
You can tell them that there is no such thing as existence without him or apart from him, or outside of him, in a sense. You can tell them that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, as Paul says. And it doesn't mean that Jesus is a little bit like God and a whole lot like us. It means that he is the God who made it all, and rules it all, and keeps the whole thing spinning. So Douglas Moo says that what holds the universe together is not an idea or a virtue, but a person, the resurrected Christ. He goes on to say that without him, electrons would not continue to circle nuclei. Gravity would cease to work. The planets would not stay in their orbits. And if your scientific knee-jerk reaction is to doubt the validity of that statement, then you have not understood the totality of what Paul is telling us about who he is. Jesus is the king over all creation. He is, in a word, the Lord in whom all creation is contained. So verse 17 tells us he is before all things. Verse 18 says that he is the beginning, and yet again the divinity is in the details. You notice that Paul doesn't say that he was before all things. That he became before all things. He doesn't say that he was in the beginning. He tells us that he is. He is the beginning. Which means that when you open your Bibles to the very first page and you read in Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, you might start to wonder what beginning is the Bible talking about? Where was the beginning before space began to expand in every direction all at once? When was the beginning before time began to tick along? What is before everything became? It wasn't the singularity. It was the sun. He is the beginning. Before all things, he is. In him we live and move and have our being. In him all creation was created. Not only creation, not just the world that we know as it's, as it's fallen and broken and tainted by sin. Christ is the Lord of a new creation. So Paul goes on and he uses that language again of the firstborn. He says not only is he the firstborn of creation, but he's the firstborn from the dead. And again here the language is speaking of his preeminence, his priority, his status as the king of these things. Jesus actually was not the first person to be raised from the dead, not technically. During his own ministry, he raised at least three people that we're aware of. A girl at the age of 12, the only son of a widow from Nain, and Lazarus of Bethany, who'd been dead for four days when Jesus found him in the tomb and called him forth. Jesus, in an absolute sense, is not the first among those who have tasted death and lived to talk about it but he is first in rank over all of them. He is the firstborn in order, Paul says, that he might be preeminent. He's firstborn in order that others might come after him. He's the firstborn from the dead because he died a death that gives life to those who die in him. Paul's statement here 
is parallel to what Jesus says about himself to Martha outside the, the tomb of her brother Lazarus. Remember that Jesus speaks to her and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He doesn't say I give the resurrection. He doesn't say that I offer the, re the resurrection, that I, that I effect the resurrection, that I can will the resurrection into being. He says, I am the resurrection. If you will be resurrected, you will be resurrected in him, the firstborn from the dead. He is the beginning in which all things were created. He is the Lord of a new creation. Why? How so? For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The blood of his cross. On the one hand, it, it seems like a surprise ending. Some, some plot twist that turns a triumph or what was going to be a triumph into a tragedy. Here's the Lord who gives life. He's the one who made all things. He has no body, parts, or passions, as our confession says, yet he took on flesh that could be nailed to a cross. Actually, it's the humility that we love to hear at Christmas time, isn't it? Right in the 4th century, St. Augustine captured this, this awesome irony of the incarnation of Christ. He said, our Lord came down from life to suffer death. The bread came down to hunger. The way came down. On the way to weariness, the fount came down to thirst. It's beautifully put. But it's not just humility that makes the miracle miraculous. It is the marvel of Christ's condescension. It's the fact that by taking human nature to himself, he crossed the impassable gulf of time and creation to win life for his creatures. And it's because of who he is, Paul says, that he made peace by the blood of his cross. Possessive there. Not the cross of Rome, not the instrument of torture that belonged to his executioners, not even the cross that we deserve because of our sin. Paul says he made peace by his cross. And why not? He's before all things. All things were created through him. All things were made for him. The cross belongs to him every bit as much as you do. He created them both so that in time he could step into creation and take the cross that you deserve so that you might have life that belongs solely to him. But it only works if he is the one who the scriptures say he is. Christmas only brings hope through humility if he's the Lord for eternity before the angels and the shepherds ever began to appear. And that's who he is. That's what Paul has been telling us about who Jesus Christ is. He is the Lord of glory. And he's the Lord of glory who gives peace to his people. 
So in verse 21, you notice a, a shift. The apostle turns from who he is to what he has done, what he came to give to those who trust him. And in a word, what he gives to those who trust him is peace. We could use the longer word that Paul uses in verse 22. What he gives is reconciliation. Read again, verses 21 and 22. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I wonder if you have ever seen this sort of thing play out just, just barely in human terms. Enemies turned into friends and hostilities Buried and people drawn near who, who were uh, far off. It happens. You see it sometimes. You see it in families. You see it uh, among siblings. You see it in families where grudges that have been held on to for decades are buried. Maybe because mom is dying and it's a time to come together. Maybe because there's something that's happened and you want to press forward in family unity. You see it happen sometimes. Sometimes you read about it happening on a much larger scale. In January 2001, a construction worker in a Tokyo subway station fell off of his staging and he fell into the path of an oncoming train. There was a student in the train station, who saw the worker in danger, and he leaped onto the tracks to try and save him. He was unsuccessful. And so the, the rescue ended with the death of both men. It probably would have remained nothing more than some terrible accident, except for the fact that the construction worker was a Japanese man, and the student who jumped in to try and save him was Korean. Some of you are aware better than I am, that the relations between Koreans and Japanese are notoriously difficult. There, there's deep-seated hostility that still exists on a very wide scale after many atrocities committed during the Japanese occupation of Korea from 1910 to 1945. But when a Korean student named Lee Soo-hyun gave his life trying to save a Japanese man he had never met before, he sent ripples of reconciliation through Japanese society. It created a, a, a mindset shift of sorts. And so the prime minister at the time, Yoshiro Mori of Japan, he lined up at a memorial service with dignitaries and statesmen. He spoke to reporters about the impact that this young man's sacrifice was having on the historic difficulties between these two nations. His death was followed by resolutions and delegations and acts of reparations. And on the 20th anniversary of his death, last January, someone who knew Lee Soo-hyun said that he, giving his life, he improved South Korea-Japan relations where numerous diplomats had failed. It's a heartwarming story, but it also illustrates the principle that reconciliation only ever comes at a cost. Sometimes the cost of reconciliation is rather small. Sometimes it means putting aside your pride to offer forgiveness to someone uh, who, who probably doesn't deserve it. Somebody who spoke out of turn. Somebody who did something that offended you. Somebody who made you feel small. And the cost in that situation is simply to swallow your pride, to get over it and to befriend them or to extend the proverbial olive branch. 
sometimes the cost of reconciliation is larger. Like when you decide to absorb a debt that you are owed. Like when you decide to pursue forgiveness and to incur a cost rather than to pursue litigation. Rather than to go the way of hostility and exercising your right to be paid back every last little cent that belongs to you. But you have to incur a cost to do that. And sometimes the cost of reconciliation is absolute. Sometimes the cost of reconciliation means putting to death the hostility between two parties. Sometimes it means bearing the weight of offenses and crimes that demand to be punished. And as Dorothy Sayers puts it, whatever the answer to the problem of evil, this much is true. God took his own medicine. So in verses 21 and 22, you, you notice this absolute change of status from enemy to friend. A more dramatic conversion could not possibly be imagined. You were alienated, Paul says. You were hostile. You were doing evil deeds. It means that your relationship, first of all, is broken. It means that your mindset is antagonistic. It means that every action of your life expresses the intention of your heart that you want nothing to do with being brought near or finding forgiveness. And that, Paul is telling us, is the reality of the unbeliever's approach to the God who made him. You were at odds. And quite frankly, left to yourself, you had no desire that those odds should be made even. Alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds, and yet you who were far off have been brought near. You who are enemies of God have been pursued. You who were full of sin have been pardoned, reconciled by the death of Jesus in the body of his flesh. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 8. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why? Well, to bear the cost that you deserve to pay. To bring you reconciliation. He did it, Paul says, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Nothing that could be said against you. In other words, he did it to bring you reconciliation and peace. Peace with God the Father that in your sinful hostility you could never secure for yourself. And in fact, peace that you didn't even want if you could have had it. But he wanted it. He wanted it. And so he sent his son. Galatians chapter 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And there's that inheritance language again, isn't it? Christ, the firstborn of creation. Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, the one to whom all things belong by birthright, the Lord of glory, entered our sin and sadness so that we could receive his eternal peace. And so Paul comes to the closing application, and so do we. 
The application is continue in the faith. Keep going. Don't stop. Don't swerve. Do not deviate from the message that you have heard about who he is and what he has done. This is true of you, Paul says, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Hold fast, Paul is telling us, to who he actually is. Not a Savior who's a little bit like God and a whole lot like us. Hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man. Hold fast to him. Hold fast even if 37% of professing Christians don't agree with it. Hold fast even if the world and your neighbors and your grown-up educated kids think that you're quaint and provincial and maybe a little bit more than out of touch for believing it. Hold fast. Hold fast to the eternal self-existent Lord. Hold fast to the Christ who created all things so that he could be born in a manger to a poor virgin from a small town. Hold fast to the firstborn of creation who became the firstborn from the dead. Hold fast to the Lord of glory who gives his people lasting peace. Hold fast to the Christ of Christmas. Let's pray together. Well, gracious God and Father, we thank you that you did not spare your son but gave him up for us. We thank you that you sent him into our world and into our flesh to bear our sin. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would not only be enamored with his humility, but see also his glory and wait for his glory as you promise that he will come again to give us the life that he came to win. Help us to wait for him and to trust in him and to long for him afresh today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.